The U.S. Agency for International Development has updated its policy for promoting the rule of law in countries where the agency operates. The new approach emphasizes what USAID calls people-centered justice. Here with what this is all about, the team lead for justice, human rights, and security, Miranda Jolicure. Ms. Jolicure, good to have you on. Great, Tom. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here today and talk about USAID's new policy. So USAID for a long time has promoted rule of law overseas through our missions and our foreign service officers. I'm actually a foreign service officer that's come back to Washington after being overseas for about 11 years. We work very closely with our local staff called Foreign Service Nationals, and we develop country strategies that determine what the needs are through analyses and engagement with our partner country government and civil society. I think we've developed this, our new rule of law policy, to really affirm USAID's commitment to rule of law globally as essential to democratic governance and sustainable development. Sure. And there is a release out stating that you have updated the policy. So what's new and different now relative to the way you did it before? Actually, this is our first ever rule of law policy. USAID did not have a rule of law policy before. We had a democracy, human rights and governance policy This is, in fact, the U.S. government's first policy on rule of law assistance. And we recognize that, you know, as I said, rule of law is essential. We see rising threats to the rule of law across the globe. And this importantly shifts our efforts to people-centered justice. And this is evolving evidence in the rule of law field of what is needed to close a 5.1 billion global justice gap. So we're looking at about 60% of people uh, globally that do not have their justice needs met. And we know that that is a threat for democracy. Well, is USAID trying to promote this person-centered justice through the programs it would be doing otherwise in a country? Or is there a new channel of aid in different countries to help them develop a justice system that delivers what you would call, you know, the personal justice that people require? So people-centered justice. For decades, USAID has been doing rule of law work. And actually, in the development of this policy, we reviewed about 340 of our rule of law programs in 83 of the countries where we've worked. And what we realized while we've been doing pieces of what we call people-centered justice that really focus the reform and justice systems on people's needs Uh, that we didn't have an approach that really looked at it systematically to reform systems from people's needs. So maybe if I could give an example that would help listeners. If you look at medical health needs, you likely look at the needs of those that have health problems. You don't immediately go to building building hospitals or just reforming systems without that information. And so really, we're trying to transform what we do by using data and information and engagement with people to understand those needs to reform systems. And that changes not reforming a system and having a justice institution improve as an end in and of itself, but how are we actually meeting outcomes by delivering what people need? 
because you're operating in foreign countries, in a sense, at their pleasure and permission. How do you know they want USAID or anybody from the United States telling them how to deliver their justice systems? That's a great point. And I think for us, what's really important is that we work in partnership with the countries where we work. So we're talking about how we engage with host country governments, how we introduce this process of collecting data and engaging with people on their wants and justice needs, and really demonstrating that this is often a cost savings for justice systems. So, for example, by looking at census data in a country, we can understand where populations are located and then be able to kind of adjust financial resources with partner countries to what those needs are. And so I think we understand and are working with partner governments to understand that that is really needed for economic development. And I think many of the countries where we work They want to see improvements in rule of law because they want investments. They want economic improvements. We are speaking with Miranda Jolicure. She is team lead for justice, human rights and security at the U.S. Agency for International Development. So give us an example of the type of project that could result in this and in the people-centered justice. And what are the types of data you might collect in pursuit of that? You mentioned census data, for example. I think what people-centered justice asks first and foremost is uh, what people want and and need when they seek justice, and that could be criminal, civil, or administrative. So we may conduct something that we call a justice need survey, and those have been done in many countries where that at the baseline kind of identifies what those needs and wants are. And then we work with host partner country governments and we analyze what that data tells us, what evidence approaches tell us. And then what are most viable solutions? And what we like to say is there are multiple pathways of justice. So it may not exist only in a formal system. So I'll give you an example from when I worked in Kosovo. We reviewed a number of cases within the courts. The court's were really having a hard time because they were so overloaded with a backlog of cases. We determined together with court officials and judicial officials that the predominant need were property cases. Those were uncontentious property cases. So we worked with officials to understand that there was a possible solution outside of the formal justice system to help people resolve those property needs. We know in West Africa, for example, we've worked on traditional justice where people have resolved their needs for a long time through traditional justice. And we know that with 5.1 billion justice needs, we have to look at a wider lens because justice systems aren't financially equipped and able to meet all of the needs that are out there. In other words, there might be a legal framework which is designed to deliver justice in a given nation, but somewhere along the line, it actually doesn't get delivered by the system. And so USAID then would help those countries develop the delivery system for lack of a better word, such that the justice that might have been envisioned by the country's founders or its constitution writers actually does get delivered. Is that a fair way to put it? 
I think it's a fair way to put it. I think also when we talk about legal frameworks, you know, in some countries, there has been a legal culture for quite a long time. And I think it's being able to look at that legal culture that may exist informally, formal legal frameworks, and how do we look at that by using data to really drive and understand what people need, what they want and try to meet those needs. And we know that reduces conflict around the world. It's a prevention measure, in fact, for many of the other uh, humanitarian and development work that we do globally. Because in many countries, there might be a cultural or religious or tribal tradition that exists overlaid on whatever the modern legal structure they might have. And therefore, in some eyes, justice gets delivered, but it looks pretty grotesque sometimes, actually, from our standpoint. I think that's correct. I think we can look at a number of different justice traditions, whether you call them an overlay or an underlay. I think there are systems that exist from colonial powers that they might argue some, you know, religious may. So I think there are different ways. I think what we understand is that there's a cultural premise for justice that exists. And as USAID, we never want a legal, there's no legal transplant. We don't say this is what works in the United States. Let's, let's bring this overseas. I think it's really working with those countries to understand what people want and need. And I think people-centered justice, most importantly, gives us an avenue to focus on marginalized people. So if we are talking about women overseas, their wants and needs may be the need for a daycare in court so they can actually access the justice system, but they're unable to otherwise. Interesting. So I guess that you could add to women many other types of communities, including, say, minority communities within that context of that nation that often don't quite partake fully in justice delivery and outcomes. Absolutely. Um, we know in many countries where we work, uh, I was most recently in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, indigenous communities that never had access to the formal system, or if they did have access to the formal system, it was under um, military courts where they were being prosecuted for violating a variety of infractions. And I think this gives us the ability to really sit down with those communities, listen to what it is that they need, and be able to respond with them. Miranda Jolicure is team lead for Justice, Human Rights, and Security at the U.S. Agency for International Development. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Tom. This has been great. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more about the new policy at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. 
It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and 
bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) 
So that's sort of the way that's sort of I, I the way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.